0: He was, a, he was a tyrant, and his wife was even worse. You see, They'd been on this state visit, and she was, she was allegedly a, a scientist of significant abilities and qualifications and publications to her name and all the rest of it. So a, a program was arranged for her at Cambridge University to meet scientists in her field, and the whole thing was a fake.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we speak with Colin Munro, who has had an extensive career with the British Diplomatic Service. Today we speak about his time as Head of Chancery in Bucharest, Romania between 1981 and 1982. He provides a vivid view of a country initiating a policy of total repayment of its foreign debt by imposing austerity that impoverished its population and exhausted the economy. If you like what you're hearing on Cold War Conversations, then for the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help keep us on the air. Just go to Patreon.com/coldwarpod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/coldwarpod. Thank you so much to our latest patron, Jamie Williams. Now back to today's episode, where we start with Colin describing his role. Within the embassy, Colin. Thank you very much for coming on on Cold War Conversations. I wanted to talk to you first about your time in Bucharest. First of all, could you describe what the role of head of chancery is in the British diplomatic service?
0: Well, I can tell you what the role of head of chancery was, because the title uh, no longer exists. Um, the head of chancery. Was head of the political section, and he was also responsible to the ambassador uh, for the coordination of the work of the mission as a whole. And that meant, in practice, that you had to have an eye on what uh, the administration was doing. You know, the payment of rash, payment and ra- rations and housing and morale. Uh, morale being particularly important in a in a in a difficult uh, iron uh, curtain post. Nowadays, this work is really done by the deputy head of uh, by the deputy head of mission. And in the very largest embassies, you'll have a deputy head of mission who's basically an administrator, and then you'll have a separate head of head of political section. Uh, in Bucharest, in the time that I was there um we had the the number two in the embassy was actually supposed to be responsible uh for trade uh, which we were attempting to expand significantly uh with romania but that didn't uh that didn't uh, work out and then when i left uh i we can come on to that later the the um the whole the structure of the embassy was uh, re- reorganized but it basically i was um as I say, responsible to the ambassador for pretty much everything that was going on uh, in that embassy and with particular focus uh, on the politics of Romania and the bilateral relationship between the UK and Romania.
1: Right. And at, at the time, relations between the UK and Romania were quite good, were they?
0: Well, uh, officially, well, we'd had this uh, state visit by uh, Ceausescu in 19, uh, 1978. Now you know that the Queen goes wherever uh, she's told to and receives whoever she's told to. Really, but uh, uh, the word was she was. She'd said she'd never go to Romania as long, as long as Ceausescu was in charge of it. The relationship was, as I say, officially uh, quite good because uh, Ceausescu had. Um, been critical of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 and was striking out on an uh, a, a independent or, or distinctive foreign policy. He'd opened up really, uh, Romania had relations with Israel, for example, the first uh, and at that time only uh, Warsaw Pact country uh, to do so. And uh, Ceausescu was uh, certainly striking. A sort of a nationalist pose. I mean, people felt that the uh, that that um, Romania's position in the Warsaw Pact was interesting and deserved to be uh, encouraged. But the closer you got to the uh, reality of what life was like in uh, Romania, the more you realised that this was really pr- a pretty brutal dictatorship and uh, the the foreign policy was a bit of a charade really
1: right right and and how much were you briefed before you arrived as to what to expect
0: well i knew pretty much what to expect because the previous uh, sort of two years i'd been private secretary to uh, the minister of state peter later lord blaker who actually dealt with east west uh east west relations and of course Uh, During that time, uh, there was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and so uh, and so I was pretty clued up on East-West relations.
1: Thank you for that. So, how did you travel to Romania? How did you get there?
0: Oh, uh, I went. It was quite adventurous, really. I I went by I went by car, and I we were not supposed. there There was some difficulty about travelling across Hungary unaccompanied. So I went uh and stayed with friends in Germany en route and then I went to Austria and then I went to uh and then I went drove into Yugoslavia, I had a couple of days skiing at Kranskagora, and then I got on a I, I put my car on a on a train from Ljubljana to Belgrade and then I stayed with a a friend of mine at the British Embassy there. And had some interesting meetings, and then I drove uh, from uh, Belgrade to Bucharest. And uh, the last, the last stages actually, uh, it was a terrific snowstorm, and I was driving along the autobahn, which had no markings. And suddenly I found I wandered onto the wrong side of the autobahn, and so I had to go sort of back and cross over and everything. But then I got to the uh, got to the embassy, and there, uh, and there I was.
1: Yeah and what, what were your first impressions of romania well
0: uh, as i say it was it was a, this was in late january it was it was there was a lot of snow and it was quite cold in bucharest the, the, what was very striking was that the snow was not properly cleared off the streets uh, and there was very very little very very little street lighting so the place was extreme uh, the place was uh, in fact extremely uh, gloomy and uh, I, I, my, my instructions were to drive to the Intercontinental Hotel and uh, somebody would come and collect me from the Interconti and show me where my, my accommodation was and so on. So I did all that. And the, even in the Interconti, the, uh, the lighting was very, uh, sh- uh, how shall we say, uh, so, subdued. So my first impression was one of, 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 of Bucharest was one of wintry gloom.
1: Right. And uh, in daylight, did it get any better?
0: Oh yes, of course. I mean, there, then the, the the snow stopped, and uh, and the and the city, known as the the Paris of the East, and it had wide boulevards and uh, Arc de Triomphe and all the rest of it. Uh, and in the winter facades of the houses were uh, mostly in a very uh, uh, in a very poor state. And as I say, the the, the 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 so the maintenance of the streets and everything was really. Uh, sort of pre- pretty terrible. Um, so and the sh- and of course shops um, such as they were uh, didn't have much if anything in them. Certainly not the food
1: shops. And the, the, what was the embassy building like?
0: Well, the embassy building was. Um, it was actually it had been a house. It was a very handsome villa in Strade Jules uh, Michelet. Uh, I, it was not really a very, uh, entirely satisfactory as as, a, as an office building, but I had a very what had obviously been a very nice uh, some a very nice living room as my office. The ambassador had quite a, a nice office and so on. And some of the accommodation was uh, w- was a bit poky, and I wouldn't say it was uh, I wouldn't say it was it wasn't all that well maintained. We had a problem. You see, we didn't we didn't let um Romanian staff or indeed uh, Romanian sort of uh, you know decorators or anything mm. into the uh, the secure part or uh, the confidential area of the of the embassy so it was a bit a bit tattier than it might might otherwise have might otherwise have been and indeed when you were doing decoration work also in in accommodation the the Romanians this was the system common to all communist countries they had an office for serv- providing services to the diplomatic corps so if you and, and you said you wanted such and such a place painted then you had to provide the paint because they wouldn't, provi- they wouldn't provide the paint of any decent quality and if you wanted say you, ne- you needed a, a locally engaged member of staff for your commercial section you would get you would get three candidates there would, only one of them would be any good, and this was the one that they had trained up to to sort of spy on you.
1: Right. So they were an employee of the Securitate as well as a. Oh
0: yes, party. yes, yes. I mean, our, the head of our commercial section was a colonel in the Securitate, and he was he terrorised the rest of the locally engaged staff.
1: Right. And and did you have to take extra security precautions to avoid being overheard and things like that? Well,
0: I mean, one of the, one of the things that I was re- responsible for was um, keeping the staff briefed on um, the security pr- precautions that they should take. Uh, we had a, a rule that, uh, for example, the, the staff were not allowed to have local girlfriends or boyfriends, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had to keep your... Uh, personal uh, friendships uh, within uh, within NATO or at least the EU, <laughs>
1: um,
0: <laughs> uh, with, the, with countries such as Austria being a grey area.
1: Yeah, what uh, about you, that, neutral um, countries? Were you all right with those or not?
0: Well, you see that uh, not entirely because the, sort of the neutral countries, um, the Austrians, for example, uh, they did not have such strict rules about you no know, fraternisation. Uh, with the with the uh, with the locals and in fact hi this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favourite podcast and I look forward to it every week.
1: To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history just go to cold com slash donate to find out more
0: uh, and then and then one of the one of our members of staff uh, was then having a, a relationship with an American medical student there were there were a lot of uh, students from Western countries studying medicine in, in Romania because it was very cheap uh, you got a, actually got a very good medical education uh, and you got much closer uh, hands-on uh, sort of Opportunities with the patients than you would have got in a in a sort of medical school in London or Munich or Berlin or or whatever. And this anyway, this member of our staff caught VD from a from an American boyfriend, and, and the security tarty got onto onto this and started giving him grief. And we had to ship and we had to ship the and uh, we had to ship him out. And all this, of course, complete, uh, you know. The, People, you give people lectures on what they should do and what they shouldn't do, uh, but they don't think it applies to them. Yeah, that was quite, that was, That's what um, coordinating the work of the mission as a whole could mean in a country such as Romania. And right. then, of course, for our confidential conversations, we had a so-called space, safe speech room, which was a sort of lead box, which couldn't be listened into.
1: Right, so that, that's where you'd have confidential conferences and things like that.
0: That's right, that's right, that's right.
1: How did you foster relations with Romania? I mean, what, what was your routine? I mean, what sort of meetings? Well, did you, we had
0: see, you had to look and see what sort of instruments you had. Um, we had a British Council uh, representative on the staff, and uh, we had a cultural, uh, and in the Communist countries, the British Council were part of the embassy. To give them the diplomatic protection that they needed, and we had a cultural exchange program with Romania. They would send so many people to Britain, and we would send so many people to uh, Romania. And uh, I mean, it was it was quite sort of it was sort of heavily bureaucratic, but it did work quite well. And the Romanians rather uh, prided themselves on their sort of uh, uh, cu- uh, cultural. Uh, profile and the British Council representative was a, quite a prestigious uh, personality. And there were there were uh, faculties for teaching English in Romanian universities, and we had a few a few uh, sort of assistants in these faculties. And then, of course, there was there was also an outfit called the Great Britain East Europe Centre, which uh, ran a uh, visits uh, visits program and so we got uh, we identified as best we could we identified the sort of promising romanians and would invite them on visits to britain and arrange programs for them in, in accordance with their interests we we had a, a sort of a visit by a sort of a mixed commission of academic politicians and all and all the rest of it and met with uh, romanian uh, uh, counterparts and we had some sort of uh, it was, the idea was to open up dialogue with people outside official circles and it uh, it had some impact we got some quite some quite interesting insights and then of course there was the whole business of trade trade worked by means of so-called joint commissions these were mixed commissions of uh, officials from from our case from the The Department of Trade and Industry, and we might have someone from the Treasury or the Bank of England, and uh, then the firms that were doing business with uh, Romania, and then of course the biggest issue was that we had uh, this uh, was a sort of consequence of the state visit. Um, There was a there was a big contract that an aeroplane, the BAC One Eleven, was going to be. Uh, uh, production was going to be progressively transferred from uh, the UK to Romania. And we had a team of engineers from British Aerospace, it was called the British Aircraft Corporation in uh, those days, now it's BAE Systems, and indeed Rolls-Royce, because these these planes were uh, powered by Rolls-Royce engines
1: and this was a passenger plane wasn't it the BAC 111
0: that's right it was yeah. a sort of it was, it was a sort of medium sized passenger plane and it ran into trouble because the engines were as i say they were rolls royce engines and they were too noisy and so new sort of noise regulations were coming in at, the, at this time and uh, so the Romanians are what to do, and the Rolls-Royce said, well, we will have to refit fit these engines with a with a hush kit to make them quiet, and uh, this is possible. Uh, ah, said the Romanians, we're going to do that ourselves. No, no, you can't do that, because the uh, the specifications of these engines and how they actually function uh, is a NATO, NATO secret. They're, they're employed, and these engines are used in the REF's Phantoms. So... The the whole contract ran into tremendous difficulty, uh, and in the end, very few. Um, I don't think the Romanians hardly ever exported any of these planes that were made in Romania. The trouble I learned once, as a as at a, at, a, at a meeting held in the open air, I got talking to a Romanian uh, aircraft engineer, and he said, "We're absolutely crazy to be doing this." You cannot imagine how much resource of our en- engineering capacity is devoted to this project. It be- should be much better devoted to other things. And the Romanians had got a big, got a big contract with the French to build a highly sophisticated small car, uh, a Citroën, and it was going to be called the Alt-Cit. And of course, it built, the ones built in Romania didn't meet the standards of Citroën, and the C- Citroën refused to market them. There was a big row about that.
1: So with the, with the BAC-111 engine, I mean, if it was a NATO secret, surely they could just pull it apart once it had been supplied to them. No,
0: no, no, no. Their reverse engineering is extraordinarily difficult. They were, they were Rolls-Royce engines. Right. Uh, and I, I learned about this later from uh, a great friend of mine who worked at one, later for Rolls-Royce, but at one time for Rank Xerox. In communist countries, they couldn't produce toner for photocopiers, right. and you couldn't do any color printing and this sort of thing. Uh, Ralph used to tell the story of how he'd been summoned to Russia, and he found that the, the latest photo, photocopier that uh, Rang Xerox had supplied was all in bits, and they, and they couldn't put it back together again and didn't know it, couldn't bring out how it worked.
1: <laughs> so our secrets were safe. <laughs>
0: So our secrets were relatively safe, as far, at least as far as, far as these yeah. engines were concerned, yeah. I think. Yeah, okay. Yes.
1: Um, did, did you ever meet Ceaușescu? I shook his hand once, that's all. Yes. What, what, was, I mean, what were your impressions of him?
0: I mean, he really was an extremely uh, sort of unpleasant. I just observed him, his, his behavior from a distance. He was a, he was a tyrant, and his wife was even worse. Uh, we discovered, uh, you see, they'd been on this state visit, and she was she was allegedly a, a scientist of significant abilities and qualifications and publications to her name and all the rest of it. So a, a program was arranged for her at Cambridge University to meet scientists in her field. And the whole thing was a fake uh, because it was or, uh, the person who conducted the conversations uh, was was actually the interpreter. And we learned all this later after the the guy became uh, ambassador in London and spilt the beans. (laughs) Krošescu's lived in incredible luxury, at least by uh, Romanian uh, Romanian standards, you know, gold taps in the bathroom and all the rest of it, and ample supplies of uh, food and uh, and every uh, conceivable privilege when the ordinary part Population were living the most uh, dreadful life. The um, control was maintained by uh, people who had, uh, there was a sort of graded privilege system. And of course, the security services were, there, so they uh, spied on everybody. Uh, it, was, it was an awful system, really. The economy really ran into trouble the uh, the the slide started in a big way uh, during uh, during our time um, the communist countries ran up debt uh, because they they borrowed heavily uh, and they didn't use the money that they borrowed efficiently and Ceausescu decided that his uh, version of independence uh, was such that the, the Romania was going to pay back its debts uh, and the way they paid back their debts was by um, throttling throttling back imports, so you couldn't get pepper, for example, uh, and uh, producing goods that could be sold regardless of how cheaply until they had paid for their debts.
1: What were the embassy social functions like when you invited uh, Romanians to the embassy?
0: Well, it depended. Um, there was a sort of group of Romanians who had uh, a sort of permission to accept uh, invita- invitations, although they were supposed to, uh, in fact, in many cases, sort of forced to sort of report to the Securitate of what they had seen and heard and talked about and all the, and all the rest of it. So I, I learned about this also from... Some friends after the fall of Ceausescu, and they say they would debate amongst themselves as whether to accept the invitation in the knowledge that they would have some nice food and good drink in a, in a, warm, in a warm flat, uh, an interesting conversation, and the price being that they would have to report to the security the next day. And so they would weigh up whether or not to accept the invitation. And then there were other, there were other people. Some of them are rather old, who didn't care anymore, and the authorities didn't seem to care about them much anymore. And they, and they, they were sort of quite free to accept invitations. And then on the on official occasions, of course, there would be uh, the people from the foreign ministry would accept invitations and all the rest. And all the rest of it. If there was a, if there was some an occasion, like an official visitor or a meeting of the joint commission, and, and so on. And uh, I would, I would say that the people who found it, and the, the sort of circle who found it easiest to accept invitations, and, and who were anyway the most interesting, were uh, the people who were in, in the cultural field: writers, historians, painters, musicians. This, this, uh, this sort of this sort of group. Uh, then there was also. Uh, I remember we had a uh, a visit from a lady who had been uh, involved in Romania in the, in the Romanian service of the BBC during the war and all that. And she had a remarkable collection of friends. <clears throat> and she came on a visit, and we put on a, a sort of a party for her, and all sort of all sorts of people. Appeared out of the woodwork, but they were very reluctant to sign our guest book. For example,
1: yeah, um, no, I can imagine. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I would say, if I compare with what people experienced in Moscow, for example, we had a much she, uh, we probably had a much wider uh, range of uh, uh, contacts uh, at a more interesting time than they did, and then. Um, there was also at that uh, at that time the German minority uh was still about three hundred and fifty thousand strong. It had been a million before the second world war. These were people living in transylvania yeah and uh contact with them was actually rather was 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 a, was a lot easier and then there were the Hungari- and then there were the Hungarians. And uh, it was very interesting talking to the Hungarian, uh, to the Hungarian embassy, for example, because the, uh, the, the Hungarians didn't think much of the Romanians, and vice, uh, and, and vice versa. And you could always tell when you were travelling through a Hungarian or a German village because they were much tidier and uh, spick and span, and so on. So that provided that provided other other circles. And then, of course, there was the then there was the diplomatic uh, the diplomatic core. We had a really quite intensive uh, uh, cooperation, comparing notes, and all the rest of it in the in the NATO circle and in the and in the EU and in the EU circle. And then some of the other Warsaw Pact embassies were were quite interesting. We were we were. Banned stupidly, we were banned from talking to the Russians at that point because of the invasion of Afghanistan. This was eighty-one, eighty-two. Uh, but I struck up quite a, a a friendship with the with a couple of East East Germans because I was fluent in that language, and and uh, the, the East German ambassador in uh, he was in Bucharest was quite high powered, Professor Siegfried Bock. Um, so, one way and another quite a lot of uh, you know quite a, a sort of busy life we didn't feel uh, as it were as cut off from the locals uh, as in such difficulty as I think uh, people did in uh, uh, in in Moscow for example
1: right right and, and what did you do for for food I mean I, I hear there were a lot of food shortages in Romania did you have food flown in well or, we had or... a
0: sort of we had a sort of small commissary in the in the embassy, and we used to import uh, and we used to import goodies from um, you know the diplomatic suppliers, Peter Eustace and all the rest of it. Why we even impro- we even imported long life milk. Would you believe it? Because uh, the the milk was delivered to a, a so called milk central, uh, and it stood outside. It was delivered at ten thirty in the evening and it went sour in the summer and it froze in the winter the there was a diplomatic shop uh, but and you could get stuff uh, but you had to bribe for it all the time have you got nice fillet steak today and you would say oh no and then you would produce packets of kent cigarettes and you would I will see what I can do and all this sort of thing <laughs> uh, it was it was completely corrupt Um we pay, uh, the Romanians were not allowed to have hard currency in their pockets, uh, so something had to take the place of hard currency, and that was Kent cigarettes. So, if you had a waiter at a party, you would pay him the nominal sum in the local currency, um, the leu, um, and then you would give him packets of Kent cigarettes. And if you saw somebody smoking these things, you 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 knew you really you were really in touch with a big shot.
1: Right, and so that became sort of like an unofficial hard currency.
0: Oh yes, you go into a bar and say, "I'd like a beer." No beer. Put a packet of Kent on the table and say, "Do you fancy a Dortmund or Union or Pilsner Urquell?" You know.
1: Right. Right. Wow. Now, um, you you were there with your wife, weren't you?
0: Yes. 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 And, and I and uh, uh, our our younger son, the older boy. Uh, was at uh, boarding school. We came out from the, for the holidays. He actually quite liked it because we um, there was a diplomatic club. But the difficult, difficulty arose with our younger son because he was he was quite small. He must have been about let's see, 78. Uh, he was uh, three. Soon after we arrived, he got a sort of a sort a of worm infestation, and it had. And he was losing weight and he was listless, and, and he had to get a sp- medicine from France to deal with it. And then he broke his skiing, he broke his leg, and it wasn't fixed properly. Uh, and oh, we, we were worried that he, he was going to have a sort of splay foot. Oh, and the worst was he had a s- suspected appendicitis.
1: Wow, as if you and, didn't have enough uh, to worry about at that point.
0: That's right. And so we, uh, and we, we went into the hospital. Cigarettes had to pass to, to get into the hospital, and all the rest of it. And then he was. My wife spent the, the, a, a night with him, and they came. The, the hospital it, it was terrible for the children and all that. I mean, all white and Oh, ghastly! And anyway, um, they wanted us to sign a paper saying they were going to operate immediately. Uh, and if he and if we didn't sign, and he died, it was our responsibility. Uh, and we weren't sure that he really did have appendicitis, uh, and and so we uh, got in touch with the, the British Airways rep. Unfortunately, they had a flight coming up, and uh, we managed to get him out, and he still got his appendix. <laughs> uh, but my wife was the night she was there; she got food poisoning, um, and so this was quite an insight into. Uh, uh, quite an insight into the Romanian uh, medical system. It was it was pretty, it was pretty terrible.
1: My goodness. Um, yeah, I it think wasn't the,
0: the da- it wasn't the it was that the doctors lacked knowledge. It was just that the 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 nursing care and everything was uh, very poor, and of course the uh, you know it wasn't properly it wasn't properly financed, and uh, it was very hard being. Uh, having young children in Romania, baby because, because there was no milk. It was really, t- really tough.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some of that footage of the um, Romanian orphanages. And uh, it's there, just...
0: Absolutely. I mean, all that was... Go- we didn't really know about that, but that, that was all going on at this time. And all the time, you see, Charles Keska was insisting on paying back the debts. And so all the time... The, the, the sort of consumer situation was going was, was getting worse and the only things that weren't rationed were the things that weren't available at all
1: well that's the end of episode one of colin's time in romania there is a second episode coming up in the next couple of months so stay tuned for that There's more information in the show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 60. If you like what you're hearing in the podcast, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps raise our profile and get great new guests just like Colin. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you are talking about the Cold War conversation. Just search for us on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at ColdWarPod. And we're also on Instagram at ColdWarConversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.